Welcome to the Pete Primo Show, episode 123. Oh my Lord, how did we get here this fast? We are with Roy Oising today, and Roy wrote a book called Be Different or Be Dead, The Audacious Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion Dollars in Sales. How a guy took a startup to a billion dollars in sales. We'll be with Roy in just a minute. Let me just pay the bills really quickly. Sell a million. If you haven't bought my book yet, what are you waiting for? Now is probably the best time ever to purchase this book and implement it. If you buy this and you see something that you need to implement and you don't know how to do it, call me, 419-560-3169. No no attached, nothing, not going to charge you for anything. If it goes over a half an hour, I'm going to say we're over a half an hour. Now, now you get to write me a check for $10,000. Just kidding. Um, but I want you to implement what's in the book, guys. It's so important. And I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Mattress Industry Network Group, for everything they do. We are knocking on 2,000 members right now. It's a free Facebook group. Hit that scan me. And if you are in the mattress industry, we want you in this group. This is a group run by retailers for the benefit of the entire industry. If you want to know how to market your products, how to merchandise, how to build your business and succeed in the mattress industry, this is the place for you to be. Everybody's welcome from guys that deliver mattresses to guys and gals that sell mattresses on the retail floor, sales reps and everybody in between. So without a further ado, Roy, you ruined my weekend, man. I couldn't get my nose out of your book. It was so good. Um, and, and I'm going to say this, you are a contrarian with, with a flair for the pragmatic. You are, you are a voice that's really needed in this, uh, this, this world that that we are living in and, and you know some of the the quotes and things in the books are, are are just outstanding uh anybody that's watching this i'm going to tell you right now before we even get into the show be different or be dead the audacious unheard of ways i took a startup to a billion dollars in sales you've got to get this book guys you've got to get it so here's something a little tidbit i want to share with you so I didn't have enough time because I didn't do my homework on time. I was a little bit late starting to do my homework on Friday instead of like a week before. And I didn't have time to receive the physical copy of the book. So I jumped on my Kindle. I had to recharge it because I hadn't used my Kindle Fire in years. And I couldn't stop reading. I just couldn't. And then I said, oh, no, 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 no. I have to get the physical copy too. So a physical copy will be here Thursday, and uh, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't think I needed this book. I've been in business for 41 years. I'm successful, and I needed this book. And I know that whether you're a uh, one-person operation with just a handful of helpers, or you're a mid-level company, or you're a big company, um, you're going to find a lot of value here today. So, Roy, tell me about how you did this. Um, and I guess, you know, why you wrote the book. I guess let's start with why, why you wrote the book. I think I know, but I want to hear it from you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, on the show. And I'm delighted that my, my book didn't put you to a sleep Friday evening. And my wife says it's sometimes an instant cure for insomnia, and I I somehow take that take that as a compliment. Uh, well, listen, that, that wasn't subheader in your book. I know. <laughs> listen, um, this whole notion of being different is kind of like always been my brand ever since I was a young uh, professional starting my way up in a in a telecom world. Actually, when way back when it was actually a monopoly, and it occurred to me that. Um, that we needed to, to do some fundamental things differently. If in fact we were going to survive and, and, and thrive in a, an ever, ever changing world. And the one thing that I noticed was that, that we tended to continue to, 
to sort of perpetuate tradition. Okay, the common ways of doing things when in fact, a new world requires us to do new things and different things. So I started my journey of being different very, very young, looking for every opportunity I could to actually step outside, not step outside the box, no, create a new box to play in. I started that very young and literally everything that I was asked to do, I looked at through what I would call my be different lens. How can I do this differently in a way that that actually people care about? Like, I want to make the point, being different isn't about you. It's not about narcissism. It's about doing things differently in a way that people care about, okay? So being different is serving others in a way nobody else does. And certainly from a business point of view, you know, you can translate that into providing services and products and experiences for customers in a way that nobody else does. And I, I got onto that really, really young. The interesting thing to me, Pete, is in spite of the fact that the world today is, is, has never been more competitive. It's never been more changing in terms of technology. Customers have never had more power. Businesses generally, and I'm going to get tough on businesses, do a mediocre job of differentiating themselves. They have a, a very, very bland way of describing what makes them different and what's, what makes them special. For example, everybody claims to be best. Everybody claims to be better. Everybody claims to be number one. Everybody claims to be the market leader. Well, if everybody is, then you've got a huge herd of sameness. Okay, so nothing is achieved, but the reality is it's, it's all BS, okay, because it's an inside view, okay, of what makes them special. That's narcissism at the corporate level, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, it makes no difference, okay, to customers to say, we provide the best customer service. I mean, what, how many times have you actually seen that? And I just go bull. You know, it's just, just crap. So I've had to create my own, uh, sort of differentiation, um, methodologies. And I call it the only statement. We can get into that if you want. We are the only ones who, okay, it's binary. It can be proven, et cetera. So this be different thing has been in my veins for literally over 40 years. And so I've written seven books around it. And, and thank you for mentioning the seventh, uh, where I try to relate it. Okay. To growth. Okay, so the billion dollars literally came from some pretty simple things, not complicated things, but simple things as a leader that I learned, worked with people, got them fired up, got them to execute and drive performance. And so, yeah, I'm excited about the seventh book. I hope, I hope it resonates with people because I wrote my first one, Pete, in 2009. Wow. Basic, basic, basically based on being different or be dead and sort of working that through the years in terms of marketing and careers, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I, I just can't stop this. It's, it's got me going and, and it'll keep me going forever, I think. So I'm going to, I want to dive into and unpack the only statement a little bit. But before we do that, I just wanted to, um, I, I wanted to, to 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 talk about the book just a little bit. So if you're a young guy, like Guy Danes, I know you're watching right now. And if you're young and you want to go as fast as you can with out making is so many missteps. Read this book. It's not just about leadership. It's about making really great moves in your career. And it's, it's everything business. It's everything leadership and it's everything about your career. And if you get what Roy is laying down, it could go, it can make you a better husband, a better father. It can make you better at everything in life. There were things in this book that I called my wife last night and I said, Jenny, remember that thing that you've been after me about, about, uh, you know, did you really need to delegate this, honey? I mean, it was just a simple email. You could have just, in the time that you sent the email to me, you could have sent the email to the company. And I said, I'm guilty. I'm, gu I'm guilty. And when I read it, because everybody says, delegate, delegate, delegate. 
And I read it and I said, nope, this isn't good. Roy's going off the rails here. And I go, oh, oh, this hurts. This, this hurts. This is me. I need to get better at this. So Roy, thank you. That was a real gift and a chuckle. And you created a moment for me and, and, and Jenny yesterday. And I'm going to be a better, a better, uh, non-delegator. But this only statement, everybody in the world says, differentiate or die, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's great. I, I, I agree. We have to differentiate. But the only statement, and I, if you're ever going to take a note on the Pete Primo show, get a notepad and paper right now because we're going to go into this thing. The only statement is the mechanism. It's the actual how to do this for your business. And incidentally, you can do it for you defining your career as well. So I'm going to let Roy have that the only statement a little bit because I think it's a huge piece of, of the book and I think it impacts our life all the way through. Well, thank you. And, and uh, it does actually. I mean, look at, I'm, I'm a learner on the run. When I started out with Be Different, it was really associated more with organizational solutions, drive superlative performance. But as I worked more and more with my stuff, I learned more about my stuff. And one of the things I learned is the applicability is very, very far-reaching. You know, you mentioned careers. Being different from an individual's point of view in a way that matters to the organization can drive very, very successful careers. Being different in your personal life in a way that your partner cares about drives, you know, uh, improvement, right? And euphoria in relationships. Like, I'm a, I'm a grandfather of four, four kids, right? So my strategy ever since they were born was to be the be different papa, right? My objective was to do things differently in a way that captured the imagination of these children for their whole life. I was going to be the edgy papa, right? Sometimes a little too edgy, but I, I would be memorable. I would create experiences for them in a way that they totally enjoyed. So I applied my own stuff. In the book, I call it eat your own dog food. You got to apply it, it to your own life. But one of the things that, that I hit on really early was because I was struggling with this whole notion of, of how in the heck do we get this business going in a very, very highly competitive environment. I spoke earlier about what I call claptrap. Everybody was trying to express their competitive advantage in ways that were nonsensical as far as I was concerned. So I hit on this, this, this concept called the one and only, the only statement, right? Which is we are the only ones who we are the only ones that now I must confess in full uh, declaration here that there was one other group that actually hit on the only statement. They didn't call it that, but the notion. Okay. And, and for, for your, your, uh, your audience who are old uh, as I am or slightly younger, I hope you can remember the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead was a rock band, uh, the most successful touring group in history. It wasn't now all the other ones that you may think of. It was a Grateful Dead. Jerry Garcia, uh, who was a lead guitar player and a, an incredible businessman. By the way, if you, if, if you want to read a really cool book, read the marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead as an aside. Anyways, Garcia said the following. You don't want merely to be the best of the best. You want to be the only ones that does what you do. You want to be the only ones. Now, the reality was that I, I use that to basically corroborate my thinking because I've stumbled upon Jerry, you know, years after I was, I was coming up with this only statement. But what it did is reaffirm for me, okay, the validity in the notion and the applicability in the, in the notion. So the idea is you need to find your special sauce, okay, not what you're better at, not what you're good at, but one, what you're the only one at. Okay. And creating the only statement is a bit of a challenge because I have lots of people say to me, Roy, well, I'm not, I'm not really only at anything. And I go, hang on. Yeah. Let's, let's get to work on that. And so I've had to create a process that I use with, uh, with, uh, young professionals, with startup CEOs, because boy, I'll tell you, Startups need this guidance because they start burning cash based on what's in the textbook. 
You don't find this in anybody else's textbook but mine. I'm the only one that talks about the only statement from a startup point of view, right? And so I try and perpetuate it that way. Let me give you some examples, okay, of what an only statement uh, would look like. I just completed some work with a uh, with a boat dealership in Eastern Canada, and this company came up with this only statement. Uh, the company's name is the only complete service partner committed to delivering solutions to grow a boat dealer's business. Now, if you think about that, it's a service partner. It's not a product flogger. This guy, this this company doesn't flog boats. They're a partner to boat dealers with the per, with the specific purpose of helping the boat dealers grow their business. Now, if you can just think about that, the repositioning of this business was like literally 180. And so now, and they are the only ones, right? They're the only ones out doing it. Everybody else is flogging boats. That's not what this company does, right? They flog partnerships and expertise to help the dealerships grow their business. So that's an example of how the only statement work basically drove a completely different direction for this business. And I've got all sorts of other ones, but the notion is the words better, best, great, you know, they, they just don't have any role in differentiation. And yet the world is replete with them. And I, and I, and I say to academics and I say to pundits, shame on you. You're not adding any value, mate. You're not because you're, because when everybody claims to be the best, they're all the same. If you want to be, if you want to be different, you got to be the only ones that do what you do. And it's a struggle to figure it out. But when you get it, watch what happens. By the way, billions of dollars happen. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Thank you. The, the only statement is something that we all have to sink our teeth into. And it's not easy. Uh, it, it, it's not easy. It, it's, it's going to, it's going to take you getting out a blank piece of paper and struggling with it and really going through. Um, but what it's going to do, it's going to cause you to evaluate your marketplace. It's going to cause you to evaluate your strengths and your weaknesses and your company's strengths and weaknesses. And at the end of that exercise, you're going to be a better leader and you're going to understand your business better. And it sounds really simple, but there's nothing really simple about it. Pete, the other thing I want to mention, just for your audience, look at, um, I've been blogging on this stuff since 09. So I've got tons of content uh, around how to actually do it. Okay, so I break it down in terms of a process. There's a very specific process that I've created uh, to allow people to develop their only statement. And it kind of goes like, figure out who you're talking to. The only statement doesn't talk to the market. It talks to the target market you have that you believe has got the potential to drive the revenues that you want, you test it, and then you try it. The only statement, I want to make this point, is always, always a draft. It's never done. And the reason for that is the world changes so rapidly. How can you ever be done? Right? This is what makes me laugh about universal selling proposition. Right? It's like, once you get this done, dude, you're done. It's over. You've got it. You've nailed it. No. I mean, that's, that's terrible advice in a world of constant change, unpredictability, yeah. right? You got to be nimble. You got to be on your toes, treat it as a draft and just kind of like more fit on the run. That's the only way this works these days. Yeah. And that was refreshing throughout your book. You constantly, um, talk about market forces, uh, unforeseen circumstances. And this this theme of your of being pragmatic runs all the way through this book, and I, I absolutely love it because I think we've been done a disservice by by academics and pseudo academics that want to formulate and they want to perfect, and it's done in a vacuum in an ideal world. We don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world that the minute you you know, put the icing on the cake and you think this is perfect, it changes on you and you have to be able to uh, make changes on the fly. And we have certainly learned that in the last few years. 
between governments making decisions to shut down our businesses and uh, being scared out of our wits by the media and everything in between to supply chain interruptions. Uh, we think we're going to go out of business one second. The next second, we have more business and we know what to do with, but then we can't get the product. And then there's inflation. Then there's a whole host of other things that go on. And it's just called life. And one of the things that's so refreshing about your book, Roy, is that you keep it real. Every page is real. There is no BS here. There is no philosophy here. This is a guy that did it and is showing us how to do it. And one of the things that I loved about your book is you encouraging us to not just be students of the skills and not just be students of our industry, but to tap into our human side, to tap into our emotions and to listen to those and to let those inform us and to help us become better leaders that not only intellectually evaluate, but that we actually feel a situation and we feel how it's going to impact the people. And I've always said to my children, you live with your brain, but you also live with your heart. And don't be too quick to dismiss your heart because a lot of times it informs you in ways that your brain can't or won't. And too often, we don't listen to our intuition. We don't listen to our heart. And those are two different things. And I understand that. But you really hit the nail on the head. And I'm like, you are so pragmatic that it's like, there's nothing that's taboo to you. And you're like, no, let's open this up and let's have a peek inside and let's bring this out and let's talk about it because this is an important part of leadership. Well, what, one of the things you, you mentioned there, like I'm, I discovered that the r- real simple things um, that need to be accomplished are actually strategic in nature. Okay. And let me give you an example. We're talking about pay, uh, passion and emotion. Um, one of the, one of the planks of be different or be dead is let's dumb down the strategy making process and focus on execution. So I've actually had to create my own methodology called the strategic game plan that, that literally it comes up with a, a strategy that says, let's head west. Now, people think I'm crazy when I talk about let's heading west. Well, I, I want to just let's head west somewhere where we think, you know, the juice is going to be and let's bear down on execution. And we will learn through the execution process whether we were right or not. Because look at we're not smart enough in a world of uncertainty and constant change to get it right the first time. And yet, everybody says and expects that we're going to get it right the first time. How nonsensical is that? And so the, so the notion of passion, okay, for me, is a mechanism that I exploited to do what? To fuel execution. Because if people feel passionate about something, if they feel emotional about something, that will typically drive them to act. Okay, the thought process, the cognitive process, the left hemisphere of the brain does nothing to execute. It does nothing. As a matter of fact, if you've ever read the game, the, the book, The Enter Game of Tennis a million years ago, I mean, the proposition is you need to get your head out of the game and let your body do what it's there to do. Okay, and so in business, the simple thing for me was, I'm going to light some fires. I'm going to get some passions going here. I'm going to stoke the flames, and I'm going to get them going slightly west, and we're going to execute the damp out of this thing and modify it on the run. I call it planning on the run. It's the only meaningful way to get to where you're going to, you, you, need, you need to get to. And so passion is a strategic concept. You don't hear about it that way. The other point I want to make is, it's not being passionate for the sake of being passionate. I mean, I'm a guy that always had the objective in mind, okay, of, of creating a machine that had unbelievable performance. Because don't forget, I took an early stage startup in the internet world in a market that was rapidly growing, tons of competition. And my mandate was to make us an unbelievable force. 
in the market. And the only way to do that is to grow rapidly. How do you do that? You don't do that through thinking, Pete. You do that by acting. How do you do that? Oh, okay. I'm going to rouse the fires and the passions in people. So passion became a strategic imperative to me. Not a flimsy psychological notion that a lot of people think it is. It's not. It's hard because it, it drives the end result, which you want, which is, is performance. The other thing I discovered was pain is indeed a strategic concept. Because if you think you could do this without the ability to sustain yourself in a highly painful environment where people are trying to drag you down and get in your face and stop you from doing different things, then you're fooling yourself. I keep saying to people, if you want to go on the Be Different journey, let me check the thickness of your skin. I need you to say to me, Roy, I love pain. Roy, I love pain. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is painful. And indeed, it is a strategic concept. One of the things that I love that ties directly into this is get the fight in this idea of perfectionism. When you as a business owner or as a leader are consistently pausing to cross your T's and dot your I's and come up with the reason it won't work, this is called perfectionism and it's your enemy. And one of the, you use a very specific number in the book. If you've got the idea 20% there, put it in action. In your in, in in your loop, there's feedback and there's modification, and we're going to polish this idea up while we're executing it. And it's going to be different when it comes out the other end. It's it's not going to be most of the time. It's going to be different because the market is acting upon it, uh, your organization is acting upon it, and. Uh, Things that you thought were going to work won't, but other things that you thought would never work were working great and you can't even figure it out why, but it, you, it's working. And you kind of put it through this, this process that, that includes feedback and modification. And one of the things that was really interesting about your book is you, you almost lost me at the two-faced thing. I'm like, oh, skip this. this. That's BS, man, this two-faced thing. But it's so important as a leader to have it built into your DNA that I'm going to change if I need to change. If the market tells me I have to change to be successful, to accomplish our goals, then we have to do that. And it's, you know, we don't go from point A to point B without a bunch of ups and downs in between. Part, part, part of the challenge we have here is that uh, school has taught us the opposite. Okay, school has taught us that indeed there is a perfect solution. I mean, just 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 figure out what x is from f of x, right? Figure out what the equation is. Uh, do your linear regression analysis, and they will tell you um, what your perfect forecast is going to be, etc. And so, all of these tools exist. And they imply perfection if they're used a certain way. And that's the problem. People come out of the school, out of school expecting that. And, and so they run head on into the real world that doesn't give a damn about the formula. You can't formularize certain aspects of business. You can use it to inform your judgment. And as I said earlier, which direction you think you should be going. But you can't use it to be precise. How can you be precise in a world that isn't? It's the issue. And yet we have this thing all the time, right? Books are written about blue oceans. I'm sorry. There aren't any blue oceans. There's a whole bunch of red oceans. And most of us have to figure out how to survive in a red ocean. Okay. That's where I come in. I'm your pragmatist that can help you with that. I'm not going to try and convince you that the blue ocean is out there for you because the reality is, okay, there may be one in 17 billion of them, okay? But for most of us mortals, humans, trying to be successful day in and day out in the business world, it's a nonsensical thing. It appeals to the academics and the professorial knowledgers. That's what it does, okay? So bring it down. And I'm, I'm advocating 
to a lot of people, and I've written a couple of blogs about this recently, put the textbook down. I want you to put the textbook down. Now, that is not to say that, that education isn't important. Seriously. Okay. If you re, if you think that you're not listening, it is important, but there comes a time, Pete, to put it down. It comes a time to put it down and go ask your frontline people what they need to execute better. Go ask your frontline people the stupid rules you've got in your business that prevent customers from loving you because they know what they are. You just haven't asked them, right? Go ask your frontline people what the competition is doing and what you need to do from a marketing point of view, right? To one up them. Go ask them whether your only statement's working because they know all the time, right? Go check out your website. Does it accurately reflect your only statement? Because I suspect in most cases it doesn't because the functionality of most web, most websites is not, is not to build the brand. It's to flog product, right? Or use mm-hmm. chatbots, which just do nothing but piss most people off anyways. It certainly pisses Roy off. So anyway, so I mean, frontline people are a source of leadership, kind of like grist for the mill. I mean, I, I look around and there's very, very few so-called leaders that spend 50% of their time with their front line. I did. How do I know it worked? We got a billion. And that was one of the things that we did day in and day out. I call it leadership by serving around, Pete, in the book. It's, it's, it's like management by wandering around on steroids. It's, it's leaders out there serving with a purpose, asking the simple question, how can I help? How can I help? Not do this or do that. How can I help? The how can I help question drives an, uh, yeah, an increase in, in effectiveness of execution. You're not just doing it because it's a cool thing to do. You're doing it to figure out what the barriers are. And it led me to this, this kind of, I thought it was a, just a great idea at the time, just patting myself on the back. I called it cleansing the inside. Cleansing the inside. It was a program that, that literally looked for ways of, of increasing the viscosity of the inside machine. Oh, I never, I never referred to it that way before. Write that down, will you? <laughs> Remind me what I said. Increasing the viscosity of the inside machine. Because if you could do that, guess what happens? Execution, you know, is, is improved. And guess what happens with that? More revenue comes in the door because you're doing a good job. So yeah, it's simple, simple, simple. But simplify is one of the, I would say, one of the, the four or five things I would say to somebody that wants superlative growth. You need to simplify your life. You need to simplify your thinking. You need to simplify what you do, okay, inside your business. And put the textbook down. Go ask the front line. Because they're simple. They're simple because they deal with customers and competitors day in and day out. And they know what works and what doesn't work. So simplicity is key. And by the way, before we get to our chapter in my book, um, if you hire a consultant who will charge you twenty, fifty, or a hundred thousand dollars, do you know what that consultant will do? Because I know a lot of consultants. They wander around and they talk to your people. That's what they do. And then they put it all in a report and they charge you a hundred, fifty, or twenty thousand if you're oh, lucky. Yeah, but let me get on to halftime and then we're really gonna. We're really going to fly. So those of you who are at home and you have your sell a million book, it's chapter 31, not you. And it's cha- it's uh, on page 50. This chapter at first glance may seem like the biggest contradiction in this book. I mean, we're talking about marketing. So why wouldn't everybody, everybody potentially be our customer? Simply because it's not possible. And more importantly, Many people are not meant to be your customer. Unless you have unlimited resources and products that are universally accepted by every consumer as desirable. And those two conditions do not exist. Remember the previous chapter where I discussed your ideal target market? That's the person you want to invest your market and budget in trying to attract while at the same time repelling people who you are not able to help. Read that again. Did I say repel? Yes, I did. This efficiency allows you to do everything that you can to help the people you can best help with your products and services while not wasting efforts and resources on those products and services 
that cannot help. The more attention, the more attention and money you can focus on the people your business is designed to do business with, the more successful will you you will be. Get it? Got it? Good. I understand this may be may feel a bit uncomfortable at first, but it's fair to everyone involved when you're crystal clear on who you can and cannot help. This will change over time, but you need to start somewhere. Always measure and evaluate your customers' buying habits and what they are responding to. When possible, find out why as well. It will help you to evolve with your customer instead of evolving away from your customer. What say you? What say you? What say I? Yes. What say you? Anything well, in there resonate? Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it's very consistent with um, with the, the planning process I basically had to put in place because the regular pedantics didn't work because they dealt with the what and not the how. So I've created, an, and again, it's, um, it's in my blogs, it's in the book. I created uh, something called what I call the strategic game planning process. And it's a real dumbed down way. And it's a, I would describe it as a, as a planning process built to execute. Okay. With a focus on execution. Okay. So it's, it, 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 it looks like this. Okay. You ask yourself three questions and the answers to those three questions basically constitute your strategic game plan. Okay. I, you, I can literally take you through a 48 hour planning session, 48 hours and sure as hell isn't a hundred thousand dollars, 48 hours. And on the 49th hour, you're in the field executing. I mean, it's that clean and cutting. First question, how big do you want to be? This is a question about what your revenue growth goals, not, not what your profits are, but what your top line revenue uh, go- goals uh, are for the next 24 months. Now, a lot of people say, oh, short-term thinking, Roy. Yes, because I can't think five years out because the fifth year never shows up, okay? It just doesn't. <laughs> What I know is the next next 24 months, and this is what it is. So how, how big says, what are my top line uh, targets 24 months from now? If I'm, if I'm at 5 million, do I want to double? Do I want to triple? Do I want to increase by 50%? The reason how big is asked first, Pete, is because the how big question or answer just defines the character and risk profile of the strategy. Okay, if you want to grow by 50%, you need to, different strategy than if you want to grow by 200%, right? And yet, most processes deal with numbers at the end. How insane is that? Anyways, how big do you want to be? Second question says, where are you going to get the money? That's the who do you want to serve? And you touched on that in in, in your chapter, okay, which I absolutely agree with. The who is all about a group of customers that have the latent potential to deliver your how big. And to your point again, it's not the market. It's a part of the market that has the potential to deliver your revenue goals. So how big? I want 10 million bucks. Who to serve? Here's five clusters. Now, here's what the point I want to make. It's not about masses, as you you pointed out. It's about carving out very specific groups because you don't have the bandwidth and resources to do it all. So you need to really focus on the who. The third question is, how are you going to compete and win? Now, this is, this is the whole thing about how am I going to differentiate myself to the who in order to get the how big? And that's where the only statement development comes in, Pete. It says, we're going to compete and win by being the only ones who dot, dot, dot. And so when you have the answers to those three questions, you have your strategy, right? And we spend some time developing objectives and accountabilities, responsibilities, but the, 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 the essence of the work is built around answering those three questions. And when people go through it, and by the way, it's super team building. The CEO is treated no different. The leader's treated no different than everybody else in the room, just part of the team. The team creates the strategy and the team building actually that goes on is, is really quite, I mean, I'm awestruck every time I do one of these sessions because it's just unbelievable. And people are surprised what they were able to achieve in 48 hours. And so to me, that's, my, you know, obviously self-serving, but my process is more relevant in the world that we exist today. Because especially for small businesses, you don't have time to do this. You want to, 
you're so busy working in your business, you want to minimize and have high quality time to work on your business. My strategic game planning process is your answer to that. It works and it's fun to do. I mean, what a great combo. Works and it's fun. Boom. Problem solved. You you touched on this, but I want to get into it a little bit more. Uh, I want to talk about the bear pit. The bear pit session is managing by wandering around on steroids, which you said, but what you do and how, and, and you know, how you do it in what you do and how you become vulnerable to your people and how you lose your entourage. To me, that is huge. It, it's, it's scary and it's liberating for a leader to do this. And a lot of leaders are going to be very uncomfortable when you tell them about the bear pit. Yeah. So and it's, it's part of what I call leadership by serving around. It's, it's another mechanism. It's another expression of serving around. So what I used to do is I used to have, you know, different ways of doing it. I would show up in, in workplaces asking, how can I help? So I became recognized and it was common for Roy to be there. It wasn't Roy, the president of the company and Roy did it on his own. So I, I took a lot of, that's when I really learned what pain was all about because frontline people will tell you, right? And so. That was a, that was the basic, I would say, uh, platform expression of, of my leadership by serving around style. But another one was what I, I ended up coining bear pit sessions and <laughs> bear pit sessions because, I mean, what I would do is organize a cross functional group, uh, get a, a cross functional group of employees, right? So the people from marketing and sales and service and internal audit, um, credit and collections you know, IT, et cetera, get them in a room and it'd be, I would try and get them relatively small uh, because, you know, too large and people don't really want to talk. So I get around a couple, uh, maybe 10, 10 to 15 people in a room and I would just, I'm by myself and I would just say, okay, um, what's working and what's not Or Let's have a conversation. Oh, I want to know what's working. And you know what? My direct reports really weren't all excited about me doing this because what came out, you know, they felt vulnerable. And and so they should, because in a number of cases, uh, I found out some interesting information about people. And so I'll use it uh, in a very, very uh, specific way to drive performance improvement, not as a weapon. You never want to do that because the day a leader that serves around, right, uses any weapon, forget it. It's gone. You've lost currency. You've lost credibility. And so you have to be really careful doing it. So the bear pits became really popular and people wanted to be invited. And the reason for that is, I mean, I took notes, right? I was a copious note taker. It wasn't Roy giving a speech. It wasn't the leader in there promulgating philosophy, you know, or espousing virtues and mission like, like, like their biggest myth in leadership is, is precision and, and you actually know what you're doing. Come on. That's not leadership. Leadership is you use the word vulnerability and openness and, and asking the question, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to, to unlock some further execution and performance improvements? And so it got to, yeah, it, it got to be kind of like a bestseller technique that people really wanted in. And the only reason they wanted in is because we made it a point of delivering results that we fed back to the participants and said, is, is, is this working? Okay, does this address what you told me? And if it did, great. If it didn't, well, we made modifications and kept going. I mean, you know, so many of those those seemingly small little things, Pete, weren't small at all. They were huge. And one of the reasons for that is nobody ever did them before. It was different. I, this is what I love about your bear pit. That you are completely abandoned corporate speak. You get rid of all the people taking notes, all the secretaries that follow you around, all of your uh, people that you know normally accompany you into a meeting. It's just you. And you're asking them for their input, for their opinions. 
And when people feel like their voice is being heard and they feel like they're helping to shape the company, that ignites passion. That ignites, this means something to me because they're listening to me. And the reason, Roy, they wanted to go to more of these because they had ideas and they wanted to be heard and they knew you were listening. And here's the most important piece of the whole bear pit thing. The reason they were excited to go in another bear pit session with Roy is because they saw tangible evidence of their voice being heard and things being implemented that they wanted to be implemented, that they thought needed to be implemented, and they saw those things happening. And so when they start to see that, the energy and the passion in the whole company just rises up. But I love this. Dumb rules. I just wrote dumb rules is priceless because there's a part in the book where you say in the bear pit, tell me about our dumb rules. Like what, what doesn't need to be there? You know, like, and that's a big part of your book. What are, we talk about what we're going to do. We're going to do, 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 do. So only so many hours in the day and we only have so much bandwidth and we only have so much attention and we don't have so much emotion that we can pour into something called passion. So what are we going to stop doing as a company too? What are we going to stop doing as an individual? So I know I just threw a bunch of stuff at, uh, no, <laughs> we could have gone, we could have no. gone for three hours on this one, dude. Look at this is absolutely critical. Like like we need to redefine innovation because unfortunately innovation today means doing more things. Okay. It's rare that deleting current activities is tagged as innovation. And yet if you look at the value, the economic value of the, of the, of the work effort employed, it's probably providing greater value than a lot of new initiatives. Okay, the stuff that, that's been hanging on for years and years and years and, and, and actually the people that install them are still there, right? Which is even a little more of a, a problem. But, uh, leaders, I call it cut the crap. Okay. And everybody knows what crap is. It's funny, just as an aside, when I introduced the cut the crap program, which was all about getting rid of grunge and the stuff that, that was, may have been relevant yesterday, but it's no longer relevant today, right? Um, when I did this, my, my executive colleagues criticized me for the program, not for the program, but for the name, cut the crap. Roy, you can't, you can't go around calling things dumb rules and, and cutting the crap. And I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, it's the language, you know, it's not really becoming a president. And I go, yeah, well, okay. I'll tell you what. If, well, we'll, if we, if we don't like cut the crap, I'm going to call it cut the stupid things we're doing. How does that serve you better? Okay. Like, this, the, the use of language resonates with people. Okay. Everybody in the organization knows what crap is and Roy is cutting it. Okay. He's not cutting non-strategic activities. Like, wow, that's really going to get your passions aroused, isn't it? Non-strategic activity, but everybody knows what dumb stuff is and, and cutting the crap. And so language again, for me, ended up to be kind of like a, a strategic imperative means to an end to light fires and get interest and arouse passion. Well, the cut the crap thing, we had cut the crap contests, Pete, okay, where there was a, a, an award given to the individual who identified a piece of crap that was successfully eliminated and released all of this potential and resource, right, that could be redeployed elsewhere, okay? We, we, we just made fun of this, you know? And, and it wasn't a management thing, it was an employee thing. And most and I, most of the, of the winners, of course, were, were people in, uh, in, in, uh, union positions because our, our, our company was unionized and a lot of the frontline people were, and they loved it. I mean, they were all into crap. I, I, I had so much fun with this. I had t-shirts made, long sleeve t-shirts, right? With, with crap written on the front and the back in a circle and, and, and an X through it, right? So I walked through the, 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 um, the workplace with, you know, with cut the crap all over my, my front of my t-shirt and my front and back. And people say, okay, here comes Roy's looking for crap. Awesome. 
<laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, you know, it's so important. We spend so much of our life at work that we have to make it fun. You know, I have a saying, have fun and sell a million, which I know does not excite you. Yours would be have fun and sell at least a billion. Um, (laughs) But this idea of having fun is a huge piece of leadership and it never gets talked about, Roy. It's, It's like, how did I just get through this book on leadership and nobody talked about having fun? Nobody talked about keeping it real. Nobody talked about, you know, getting people to just relax and be themselves and share. Because when you're constantly on the defense, constantly trying to be politically correct in a corporate situation, it's the death of creativity. It's the death of true innovation and opening this up and having fun and kind of poking at yourself at the same time, humanizing yourself to your people, uh, this bear pit where you're completely becoming vulnerable to them. I think that this doesn't get talked about enough, but I cannot believe this. I've got so much more that I wanted to ask you and I can't because I promised to give the last 10 minutes, but I'm going to cheat a little bit. You said this, a standout leader is an artist who paints a vivid picture of what a dazzling customer moment looks like for all to see. That is poetry, but that is a beautiful thing. And the interesting thing to it is you didn't do that in a vacuum. You created, oh, no. you, I mean, you d- did it with other people and you know they were part of the tapestry of of that of of that picture and yeah, to it, me it, that is it, well it cute. it look at it's an example of what i call strategic micromanagement you referred to delegation early on and it's another issue i have with most most uh textbooks that encourage leaders to delegate everything and i think that's absolute hogwash and nonsense there are certain things that leaders need to put their own fingerprints on. There are certain things that leaders cannot delegate because all that is is abdication and there's too much of that going on. So one of the things that, that I did because customer service and creating dazzling moments of truth with customers was, was a, in essence, a huge part of our strategy. You know, it's one thing to say, go dazzle a customer. If you don't, if you don't provide any more detail, everybody will do it the way they think they should do it. Okay. And it'll look different because everybody has a different perspective on what that means. So I decided that I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to create a context within which behavior will be consistent with the strategy that we've got and that it will be consistent uh, throughout the organization. And so I would literally, I, I was a driver of architecting what that customer moment looked like. What are the things that, that, that were talked about? What language did we use? Okay. What responses were appropriate? What resources were available? I mean, it was literally architecting it. Extremely tedious. I was, I was criticized for getting too deep in the work. And I thank people for that. Thank you very much. You recognize the importance of it. This leader, okay, is going to get involved with that and hold people accountable. This isn't about having fun for fun's sake, Pete. This is having fun to get the job done and drive a billion. And that's one other thing I want to mention to you. If people read the book, there's all sorts of examples of, of different things that we, we did. Okay. Um, they were not done just to be different. Okay. My, my, I am relentlessly driven by the strategy that we've agreed to. I am relentlessly driven to improve performance and execute and deliver results. And to the extent that the cool things, actually were related to that, that's super. We did it. If they weren't, we didn't do them. And so fun needs a context. You need to have a context to be fun. Why was why were the bear pit sessions fun? Well, they were fun because we held them as a way to help me uh, be a leader that served around and get information that improved execution. If that weren't the case, I would never would have done them. In other words, 
fun has to be a strategic imperative to drive results. And it's up to the leader to figure out what that looks like. You don't just, let's have a party. What? No, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to drive performance. Now let's look at all of the levers and the mechanisms we have at our disposal to light fires to get us there. And so always, you guys out there, always have a context for your actions. Never be tactically driven. If you want to do social media, have in your head why you're doing social media. Okay, if you want to be on Instagram, have in mind your why are you doing it? What are you expecting? What are the results you're expecting? It's not, you just don't want to do it for the sake of doing it or worse, doing it because everybody else is doing it. In fact, I would also, I'd be driven by doing what everybody else isn't doing because I'm an exclusionist. No, you're, you're a contrarian at heart. You, you yeah. always look at it the other way. And I love that about you. <laughs> I found so much value in this book. And, and what I'm hearing loud and clear is strategy, strategy drives tactics. Absolutely. But one of the things that I don't want people to forget was this attitude that you went into. Uh, and I, I think that you had this attitude um, when you were serving around or in a bear pit session. Either way, um, you were looking to absorb information from your employees and your teammates. You, 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 you're open to it. And that's the problem with too many leaders. They're just like, they repel everything yeah. and they don't want to hear about it. And one so of the, th I forgot where it was even in the book, but it said le something about leaders get dirty, you know, right? Abs absolutely. In fact, you know, it's, it's like you, you want to look at their hands. Like that's the metaphor I use. You know, you could see a leader with, you know, manicured nails and, you know, clean hands. You know, they haven't done anything in the, in the, in the pits, in the, in the trenches where results are delivered. You know, so the metaphor I says, you know, you, you want to be a really effective leader to support execution. You got to get your hands dirty. You, you can't ask other people to do stuff. You need to do it. You need to get dirty yourself. But again, you know, it's, it's like the, it's like the, the leadership persona that's being created over, over decades and decades and decades is not that. It's the ever wise, you know, omnipotent individual sitting atop an ivory tower promulgating wisdom and getting no results. But they never talk about them getting no results. Can't do Roy, that. Roy, it's unbelievable. We, we're almost out of time. Thank you, uh, Guy. Uh, it was a great session, and I'll, I'll tell you, Guy, uh, get the book. Get get the book and get in touch um, with Roy because he's got a lot going on uh, that could be very helpful to you. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Roy? If somebody watched this and they're like, "Hey, I I want to, I need to get in touch with this guy," how yeah. do they do it? Yeah, well, an email is roy.osing at gmail .com. Okay. And I'm really happy to have a conversation with anybody about any stuff. Check out my website for, for resources around Be Different or Be Dead uh, and, uh, see, and check it out, see what you think. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really, really wanting to see. I love it when somebody grabs one of the ideas and, and starts working with it and we, we talk about progress, etc. It lights me up, man. It lights me up day in and day out. And I'm happy to help. Roy, thank you so much. This was a blast and uh, we could go on for hours and hours, but I think everybody that watched this knows uh, that there's a lot here and guys, you know, watch the replay and enjoy it. Roy, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, the passion that you put into this book and the You are in this book. It's like you did not write like an academic textbook. Oh, this is perfect. I mean, you, you got dirty writing this book, dude. You really did. I mean, this is like you. And it's like, I felt like I knew you before I even finished the book. I'm like, this, this dude's the real deal. Like he really cares. He really wants to do the right things. 
And there's going to be a lot of leaders that kind of fight them on some of these ideas because it requires more work, not less work. This is not for the ivory tower dude or dudette that doesn't want to get their hands dirty. This is for somebody that really wants to do something special. If you want to do something special in your business, grab Roy's book. And Roy, thanks a million. I appreciate you being here. So very welcome. I'm, I'm humbled and honored to have been invited, Pete. Thank you. No, thank you. Have a great day. See ya.